Once upon a time, I was a fierce, confused kid with a complicated home life, a subscription to Thrasher magazine, and a messy and cohate dream of one day making my mark in the world. At the time, all I got for my trouble was some banged up shins, a collection of punk rock cassette tapes, and eventually, a ticket out of Dallas, Texas. And for me, that was enough, until it wasn't. Bing Lu had more clarity of vision, more courage, and more humility than I did. So somewhere along the weird winding road of life, he picked up a camera and trained it on his friends at the skate park. And sometime during his cinematic journey, his amateur skate video morphed into an Academy Award-nominated film about skating, domestic violence, and absentee fathers, as well as a self-portrait in a hall of mirrors. A little bit kids, a little bit seven up, and a whole lot all its own. Minding the Gap is the nonfiction film that Bing fashioned out of the wreckage of his childhood. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Bing Liu. Bing, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, your movie, um, Minding the Gap, is uh, truly an extraordinary film. And I have a thousand questions for you, but I'm going to start with a simple one, which is also big, um, which is when and how did this go from being a personal amateur skate video to a serious and deep and profound film about absent fathers. What was that process? Tell us the story. Sure. Yeah, I was in my uh, early 20s. I was feeling a little lost. I was working as a camera assistant. I moved to Chicago, had kind of gotten kicked out of my house. Um, so I was, you know, a little confused at the time about like what family meant. And so I started just asking my friends, you know, what it meant to them. Um, and, you know, at first it was going to be like those interviews paired with skateboarding and I was going to release it as this experimental skate video on Vimeo. Um, and then one night I was having dinner at my friend's house and his wife was like, you should apply for this fellowship with this project. And she was like, it, it, it's, uh, it's with Cartemquin Films. Um, and I was like, oh, that's a funny sounding name. Never heard of that before. Uh, and, you know, I applied and I got in and um you know it was a six month process it was a six month fellowship where uh, i learned everything about documentary um you know i'd come from the fiction side of things i was you know uh working on tv shows and movies and i thought i was on track to become a narrative dp um but then uh you know i, I learned that there was this whole uh the history of documentary um, that really blew my mind. I watched Hoop Dreams, which Cartemkin produced in the nineties. Yeah, for our for our listeners who don't know, Cartemkin is the uh, the shingle of Steve James and and uh, Gordon Quinn. And and go ahead and continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, it's there's so much to talk about. I'm I'm sorry that I'm sort of you know like throwing things at you in the very non manner. No, it's good. Manner. Keep going. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I watch Hoop Dreams, I watch Harlan County, you know, I watch all these verite films that felt almost like fiction films. And I was like, oh, why don't I, why don't I make my project in uh, a verite way instead of, you know, doing these interviews with all these skateboarders. Um, 
and I slowly honed in on fewer and fewer skateboarders until I got to these two boys from my hometown, Zach and Kier. Um, and you know, uh, the rest was just going off instinct and rolling with the punches. You know, I, I, I didn't, there was no one point in which it became this much deeper film. It just kept, you know, life just kept happening and I just happened to be there for a lot of it. So, so how, how close was Zach and Kier were you as, as it began? Like, did they start as friends? Did they start as subjects and sort of talk about the evolution of that relationship? Yeah. So in skateboarding, um, it's kind of like the music industry, you know, everybody sort of knows of each other, but you know, are you actually friends? I don't know. You know, you hang out around each other. You kind of, you know, um, you skate together. together, you know? Um, and so that's what Zach and Kier were for me. I didn't really know much about them. Um, but I knew that, uh, when I started coming back to Rockford, Zach was about to become a father. And I was like, oh, well, that's a trackable journey. And Kier just blew me away when I interviewed him. He was just so emotionally intelligent for his age. Um, and yeah, uh, I really got to know them through making the film. So, you know, one of the interesting methodologies and choices that you made in it is you have these very intimate interviews and very rarely with the, in, in certain places anyway, um, oftentimes you use them almost as voiceover or as sort of like dipping into the minds where you're not, you know, cutting to the on-camera interview, but you're in a verite scene and you're interweaving, you know, the interview material over the top of that. Talk about that choice and kind of triangulating it and, and mm -hmm. how you found the sort of appropriate balance for when you need to be on their face in the moment to sort of for the full impact to connect emotionally versus, okay, I want this to sort of drip behind a verite scene and give you additional context or insight? Um, I mean, it all comes down to story, you know. I mean, ideally, I would have had everything in the can to where I didn't need any voiceover. But of course, in documentary, you can't be there for everything. And so um, that's kind of how I thought about it. You know, like we always lead with verite because it's just much more experiential. You know, it's not telling you anything. It's showing you things. You draw your own conclusions, right? Um, but when we can't, when we have to fill in holes, you know, we do all the documentary tricks that we have to do. And a lot of that is, is voiceover. Um, the film took an insane leap forward in terms of, um, it's feeling of narrative cohesion. Once I started working with Josh Altman, who came on to edit with me, um, you know, he really, uh, I remember when I showed him a rough cut of the film when I was trying to look for an editor and he was like, wow, this is really emotionally gripping. I was, you know, just so emotionally impacted by it. But if I were to tell you what the story is, I, I wouldn't know how to, where to begin, you know? And so working with him, um, you know, we really uh, hashed out, you know, the journeys of these two boys um, and eventually the journey of myself as a filmmaker in making the film. Um, so, so you, I want to I want to sort of drill into a couple of ideas that you just presented there, which is with a film like this, you're directing, you're shooting, you're producing, and you're cutting. And talk a little bit about the um, 
the choice of a collaborator in Josh and the nature of that relationship? Because here it is, somebody that you're entrusting with your most sort of precious, your own biography in a fundamental sense, as well as all the years and blood, sweat, and tears you've put, put into it. Like, what were you looking for in Josh and what did you find in Josh? I, I, I had really... I felt like I had sort of dug myself into a corner a little bit. I was kind of at a loss by the time I met Josh. Um, you know, I, I might've been editing in circles. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's one of these things where, um, you know, I shot the last scene of what ultimately would become the last shot of the movie um, two years before we picture locked. Um, so I was, you know, kind of trying to figure out what I was, what this all was. I kept shooting. I kept like going out to Denver over and over and over to, you know, keep following Kier's story. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was, it was actually through another job that, uh, Josh and I met, uh, on that helped me see that we, uh, have very similar tastes. Um, we listen to the same music. We like the same movies. Um, and you know, we were kind of had the same instincts in the edit room on this other job that we were on. Um, and so it just kind of became a no brainer for me, um, that, and, uh, you know, with really great documentary editors are just not available. You know, they're booked up. They're, they're like in, such, they're in such high demand. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're the true, you know, heroes of story and documentary. They're the true screenwriters, you know, documentary. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of it came down to, um, just n people not being available. Um, but the other half was that, you know, Josh and I just have such similar taste. And that's such a fundamental thing. You know, I know in, in the work that I do that sort of loving the same things enables you to make the same movie. Like that is sort of the, I think the most important criteria. And then the ability also, I think, to check your ego at the door and best idea wins. It doesn't matter whose it is. Like if that makes the movie better, that's the cut. Um, so do you continue cutting when Josh comes in? Are you sort of both simultaneously working or is he doing a recut or how do you work editorially from there? Yeah, well, at first he, he, could, he was cutting another film that ended up going on to um, win the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance that year, the same year as Mining the Gap. And so he was like, I, I can consult. <laughs> um, and I was like, sure, I'll take anything. Um, so we sat in a room and um, he just suge he suggested I cut two separate films, one of Zach and one of Kier, which I had never done before. Um, and we laid out, you know, with, I showed him scenes that weren't in the rough cut that he saw. And he was like, and he, I sent him some transcripts um, and he started um, just suggesting what Kier's story actually is, you know, and, you know, we sort of talked through it all and we figured out that Kier's story is actually um, a guy who just wants to, you know, move out of his hometown. Um, but what does he need to do that? You know, he needs to get a job. Um, he needs to get a promotion. He needs to save up for a car. Um, emotionally, he needs to, you know, come to peace with what he's leaving behind as well, which is his father and his friends. Um, and so that, you know, was so helpful because then we could start, you know, laying out the beats of that. And same and with Zach too, you know, it was like, um, you know, it, it was an easier story to tell in some ways because there's a relationship and it sort of, you know, has its own um, arc, arc. Naturally. Naturally. Yeah. Um, and so I went off and I cut those films relatively quickly because I just had no, I knew the 
footage and material so well at that point. And, you know, most of the scenes were already cut in some form. And I showed it to him and Josh was like, oh yeah, no, this, I think your film will probably get, we could probably get into Sundance. (laughs) And I was like, well, okay, if you say so, I I don't know. You've edited a lot more films than I have. And, um, and then luckily, and then I, you know, I, I, we sort of like went back to the board and, you know, beat it out, uh, the film combining those two stories. And at that point he was like, I don't know if your story fits in here. Um, cause in the rough cut, I showed him, you know, there's an interview with my mom. There was, you know, like bits and pieces of me. Um, and he was like, do you, you know, would you consider not having your story in the film? And I was like, maybe, but you know, I got this film funded off the back of, you know, a cut that had me in the film. So I don't know if that's going to work for, you know, ITVS, which is the biggest funder that came in. Um, so we, you know, I was just like, yeah, let's just table it for now. Like let's just edit a film of Zach and Kier. Um, and, you know, I, I did a few cuts and then all of a sudden the other film goes dark that Josh is working on. He's able to come on full time with me. And so we rented an Airbnb in Venice, California, where he lives, and we set up two laptops and a kitchen table, um, had a couple external monitors, two hard drives, we edited on Premiere, and our process would just be, you know, um, we lay out the film on cards, uh, you take this reel, I take this reel, you take that reel, and then we just edit side by side, and every so often he'll lift his headphones and he'll be like hey Bing I, I, I need a nighttime driving shot you know where I'd find that I'd point him there and every so often I'd lift my headphones and go hey Josh can you just watch this scene I'm not sure you know if this is working um we'd finish our reels we'd stitch it back together uh I bought this 50 foot HDMI cable that we ran to this TV in this Airbnb sat on a couch watched it down um went and had a beer afterwards sometimes we'd go surf and then talk about it the next morning and then go back to the board. Uh, we did that for three months. Yeah. So talk about the the braiding of those stories together. Are you, as you have the architecture of each individual storyline, and then you're essentially doing not quite paper edits, but beat sheets, you know, sort of by, by scene or whatever, and you're finding those points of intersection. And how closely in the edit do you in- adhere to, you know, what you had broken on the page? Um, not, you know, it's, it's not down to the, um, it's not down to every last card. Uh, we veer, you know, we, uh, I mean, it happens all the time in in documentary editing. I mean, it happens all the time, just in documentary production, whatever, you know, pre-production. You have to be able to turn. You got to make the the turn when it wants to turn. Yeah. And like, you know, I think that it was nice because I think this is where the similar taste comes into play. Like, you know, Josh and I, we're just very honest with each other. And if something is forced or, you know, we're trying to squeeze something that's not actually there, you know, I, I, we're not afraid to speak up. Um, and it's just whatever serves the film, you know, and it's not what served. It's not about like, you know, oh, we didn't, we, I didn't do a good job cutting this section or whatever. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it was a constant. I mean, <laughs> we actually used the digital whiteboard and there must have been, you know, like 50 different versions of it, you know, in those three months, we just kept making new cuts over and over. we've worked at quite a fast clip because we were so honest with each other, I think. So at what point do you begin to contemplate weaving your story back into it? And where are you at the end of the three months? 
Well, yeah, somewhere in those three months, um, we decided to revisit my story and, uh, and Josh took a stab at that mom interview that, that I had, um, done and what he cut was, uh, it wasn't completely different, but it was so at the, it wasn't completely, you know, technically different, but it was just so emotionally different. Um, cause what I had cut was a very expository interview where I'm, it's about information. It's about, Oh, my, I'm just using my mom to, um, like give you a sense of who I am. Um, and I wasn't paying attention to this confrontation that was happening. I was actually confronting her about something and, and Josh brought that out and he did it so wonderfully the first time his first pass of that scene, that it was very clear that, uh, you know, this scene itself justifies my character being in the film. And we just built around that. We, you know, we like built what we needed to know to lead up to that scene for me as a character. And, um, you know, and we uh, ab were able to launch pad off of that scene and, and sort of start a journey with my character. I mean, the second half of the film is all about like my character, you know, driving everything actually you know, less so Zach and Kier. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to, rec to recap what you're saying, what Josh saw is the emotional subtext in the scene, right? You were cutting the sort of superficial available layer of yes. plot of, of sort of whatever it was, and he saw the dynamics and the undercurrents between the two of you guys. Yes, and I was so blown away. I, I was like, wow, <laughs> how did I not see this? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, that's the beauty and the power of like the right collaborator at your side. It gives you that sort of freshness of vision to material that you've been, you know, wandering in for so long, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's, you know, so, it's so hard to get perspective on a cut of a film that's not even about you or your family. Um, it's, you know, triply as hard when it is about you and your family. So I want to drill into something a bit further, which is it's an interesting approach or um, and sometimes it's oblique and sometimes it's explicit. But the discussion about race in America in the film, uh, talk about that and sort of what your choices were going into it and what your feelings are about about it with regards to the film. Yeah, I mean, when I first started this project, when it was a survey film of me just interviewing skateboarders, I was trying to get at voices that weren't common in this predominantly male white subculture of skateboarding. And uh, you know, I was interviewing a lot of people of color. Um, and when I went back to Rockford and I, you know, like saw Kier uh, skating with Zach, I was like, oh, he, like he is um, like the one black skateboarder in this in this group and what does that mean for him? And so that was partially why I chose to interview him initially. Um, and I thought we were gonna talk more about that. And I was surprised by how much we actually veered and talked more about, you know, his unresolved feelings about his father. Um, but as time went on, you know, it, it felt very, um, it felt like, you know, he hadn't actually like thought that much about what it meant to be black, at least not yet. Um, and, that uh, sort of made it a problem as we were doing rough cut screenings because you know people weren't responding to that part of his story, that thread. Um, it, you know, I was getting notes like this thread doesn't feel like it fits in with the other themes of fatherhood and growing up and abuse, etc. Um, and then you know uh, we were in this 
and Josh and I were in the throes of editing and we, we were cutting that scene um, where Kier's talking about what his father taught him about being black, you know, that it's a chance to, um, you know, prove people wrong every day. Um, and for some reason like that resonated in a way that gave us an idea. And, you know, like I called Kier after that and I was like, you know, Hey, what else did your dad teach you about, you know, growing up and being a black man in America? And, uh, he had a few stories to tell and it was, this was like a few months before we were picture locking. It was like, we we're still trying to figure out, you know, how to get this thread in without people, you know, kind of um, not responding to it in, in rough cuts. And so I flew out to Denver, did a pickup shoot, and he told some of these stories and were able to massage that into his um, story. And all of a sudden it felt like it had a narrative purpose. You know, it was about, it was just one more thing that his dad is trying to teach him, you know, that he felt like he didn't listen to because he was, you know, young and, you know, started rebelling against the way he was disciplined. That scene, you know, when he finally goes to the cemetery is, is such a beautiful and, and, and profound scene and the kind of emotional catharsis so deep. You know, what struck me as uh, one of the many things that struck me about the movie was the tonal shifts in it. Because when you start this movie, it's like, it's very, uh, you know, it's kind of the enemy and, and just chaos of youth, right? Where you're like, okay, what, like, it seems so sort of light, and then it ends up going to such depths, and yet it, and then it finishes kind of with grace at the end, like skating through the streets again. Talk about kind of modulating tone over time and how you, uh, how you sculpted that. Yeah, I mean, skateboarding from early on in the film always, you know, was meant to serve as a reprieve from um, a lot of these heavy topics that the film was touching upon. Um, but early on, when I was doing my first rough cuts, um, people were saying, I, I like when we get to the skating, but it feels repetitive. Like, it's not adding anything to, you know, I just feel like, oh, we're, you know, view skateboarding again. Um, and it took a really long time to, I mean, it, it you know, it was, it was when I started working with Josh and like, it, you know, it, it had a narrative purpose, you know, oh, it's not that we're just skateboarding again. We're skateboarding because we understand that Kier is like busting his ass washing dishes and he got a raise and it sucks, but he's like trying to save money. But wait, he does, he has a day off, you know, like right. it just, it's it, the payoff. It, it's the, it's yeah, there's more payoffs to the skateboarding, um, but and then the end, you know, uh, I, I, the end always was meant to be the skate montage because, you know, despite everything that can't be resolved in life, I mean, that's just what skaters do. They just, they just go back to skate. skateboarding. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, um, there's a, there's a couple of things in there that I think are, that I want to explore further, which is, um, there's also this amazing montage, you know, you talk about the skating montage at the end, but there's also that montage where it's like, you know, maybe three quarters of the way through the movie. And it's that simple piano cue that that's just sort of, you know, just a handful of notes. And you're kind of reprising all these moments from, you know, your life and those of the character's life. And it's, it's one of the most arresting and, and kind of poetic and lyrical pieces of documentary editing I've seen in a long time. Talk about that sequence and, and sort of scoring to that and building that sequence because it's, it's masterful. Yeah, Nathan Halpburn is an amazing composer. Um, 
and Chris Ruggiero too, who helped him compose this. But I, I responded to Nathan's work when I saw Rich Hill. You know, it was very elegiac, poetic you know, score to rural life in Missouri. Um, and yeah, uh, we when Nathan and I we started talking maybe like nine months before Picture Lock, and he had he didn't do much work until we're closer. But um, we talked a lot, and I talked a lot about um, uh, trying to come up with motifs for certain, you know, threads of the movie. You know, like, can Zach have a motif? Can Kiara have a motif? Can skateboarding have a motif? Um, and, yeah, he, he came up with the, the that wonderful piano riff that just... It's know, amazing. It's yeah. so, so, so simple and so beautiful. It's, yeah, and it's crazy. Like, somebody actually DM'd me a while ago and it was like I played that as I walked down the aisle at my wedding <laughs> oh <laughs> you know, beautiful yeah. that's good that's yeah. the, that's the that's the payoffs we occasionally get from going through the hell of making <laughs> yeah exactly yeah stories like that but yeah that that sequence that you're describing of you know I think we title it like the boys to men montage like in and the card in the whiteboard but uh it came out of actually a, a like time passing problem you know, we have this climactic montage and it's summertime, you know, Zach's sitting by the river drinking beer, Kier's at the cemetery. And then, but the last scene is winter. The last scene is Kier, you know, moving out and it's, there's snow on the ground. So it was just like, how do we show passage of time, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I was like, what if I just cut like a scene? What if I just cut like really quick cuts of like Kier growing up um, as a reprisal? And so when you cut that, and are you cutting with temp music sort of throughout until Nathan comes on? And then, like, talk about the process of working with Nathan and how to fight tempitis and, and everything else in that in that process. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Josh is so good at he, – he was very disciplined about – like, I, I was surprised by how long it took him to find temp music. Like, he would just spend a lot of time looking for temp, and now I understand why. Um, cause it matters. And, you know, um, yeah, there's tempitis, but there's also your, if, you know, we found out we got into Sundance, we had like three weeks to picture lock and then like four weeks to finish the film and get all the cues in. And, you know, we were also fighting time. Like we didn't really, we couldn't, it was hard. It was hard to veer from the temp at that point. Um, but I, I do, I do, I will say that, uh, one of the, one of the soundtracks that I was very influenced by um, early on was this, this Turkish film called Mustang um, that Warren Ellis did, um, that yep. Warren Ellis composed. But yeah, beautiful, you know, like piano. And um, yeah, so that, that sort of was, the piano was kind of a big theme in the temp for a long time. Um, yeah, I think you know, a third of the tracks that came in, a third of the cues, they were pretty spot on. A third of them, we had to do a couple, two or three takes. And then there was a third of them that just took forever. You know, I mean, the climactic, like for one example, the climactic cue was really tough because there's just like, I don't know, like 17 stems or something. There's like so many different elements going on in that. And, you know, Nathan was like, I, I think this might be too much, man. Uh, I'm like, just, you know, send me the stems. Like, we're in sound, we're in the final day of sound mix. It's still not right. Like, I'll just do some music editing on my laptop. And, um, I, yeah, that, that last cue was a blur um, because we were in sound mix till like two in the morning um, on the final day. 
yeah, I, I still wonder sometimes if that cue is too, you know, I've gotten comments about that cue being kind of over the top. Um, but for other people, it works. So I don't know. I think I think I think it yeah. I, I think it works beautifully. So um, were you how much music editing are you doing along the way? Are you getting stems for different tracks and sort of paring things down and and sort of recutting? How much are you sculpting that? How much is Nathan? Talk about that. Yeah, J Josh and I love getting uh, stems because uh, if it doesn't work for this part of the film, maybe it could work for a different part. Or we could, you know, I mean, it. it it sucks because I like want to everything else in a documentary. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, okay, maybe I'll put it here. Yeah, it sucks because you want to respect the composer's work, um, but at the same time, you just kind of have to do what works. Um, and it's it's it just comes down to time and money. You know, you just don't have the time and money to just keep futzing and going back and forth. You just kind of got to like um, Jerry Rickett, like everything that we do in documentary, just make it work. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was it like screening the film with your mom for the first time? I wasn't there, which is probably like a good thing. It would have been really tough. Uh, I sent her a cut. I sent everybody a cut like before we picture locked to make sure that everybody's going to be okay. Um, and yeah, she just called and she was like, I you know, didn't realize what you were doing. You know, I'm, I'm proud of you for making this. Um, I, I didn't, she was kind of, she felt a little she seemed a little speechless actually like i i still i'm sure you know i don't really know i don't we haven't i wish I, I, I it's been years now but like we've never really digested what the film has meant um and maybe we will someday but i i don't i don't know what it what the film means for us um, well, you know, it, that's one of the that's another thing that struck me about the movie is you can feel it being the vehicle through which you're digesting your own story and your history and where and who you are and what made you who you are. And it is like the film itself, to some extent, is the digestive organ of that is what it felt like to me viewing it anyway. Yeah. And I think like what the feeling of it for me and I believe for everybody else in the film is of having gone through their personal histories of violence is that it's, it's a contradiction. And what we're doing in this film is we're freezing a contradiction in time. And, you know, there's, I, I don't know what to do with that in terms of it existing in the world and me having these relationships with my mom and brother and, you know, everybody else that's in the film, you know, it's, it's just, in some ways there is no, uh, I don't know if there's any more meaning to be gleaned from it than what it is, you know? Well, you know, Carl Jung talks about kind of the, the evolution of a healthy soul being the ability to hold the tension of the opposites. And it's not that the tension ever abates, right? It's that you're just able to hold both sides of them. And that's as close as you can get to kind of being whole and being a human being, which I think is a pretty beautiful way to to look at it, you know? Yeah, no, that's really smart. That's, wow. I'm going to I'm gonna have to look that up. <laughs> there you go. There's, I give you some homework. Um, well, moment of appreciation for Warren Ellis, too, just because, did you see the new uh, Andrew Dominic's new Nick Cave Warren Ellis film? If you haven't seen that yet, put it in, put it in your I queue. Have it. It's absolutely wow. a marvelous, marvelous piece of work. So I'm going to give okay. you more homework now. Okay, great. Um, and then... Um, the last thing that I'd like to kind of touch on and get your your take on, because I think it's a really 
it's a universal thing in making documentaries, and it's a very sensitive um, and delicate choice, is the intimacy that you have with your subjects and kind of the... Um, to what extent, you know, Janet Malcolm once said, you know, remarked upon the sort of predatory nature of journalism where you're sort of swooping in and, and you know, stealing some part of people's soul or heart or story or whatever. And yet at the same time, that is the job. And then to kind of honor it and do it justice. So I'm curious what your relationship was like, um, you know, with Zach and with Kier and how you navigated that line, particularly by the time you end up, you know, I guess the arc of that relationship as filmmaker to subject and then sort of where it lands in the end. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I don't think I could have made this film in the same way in 2022. Um, I mean, partially because of my own personal understanding of documentary and ethics has just grown. Um, and at the time I was sort of feeling my way through it. And, um, I think the naivety kind of helped me. Um, at the, you know, but it, it wasn't easy. It was like, you know, in, in this industry, in the documentary field, it's, it's different from journalism in that there's not really a standard of ethics. Um, we're just kind of like each creating our own set of ethics with each film that we make. And, and know, it's not journalism, you know, it's filmmaking, yeah. which is a different, you know, there are sort of elements that overlap, but it's a fundamentally different enterprise in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, as much as I thought, and I think audiences are becoming more um, literate about documentary filmmaking and what goes into it, what is ethical and what isn't, but sometimes I'm surprised by, you know, what people have an uproar about and what people don't, um, and it just shows that there's still a general lack of understanding of what it is that we do, um, but with Zach and Kier, I mean, you know, Kier was, uh, um, you know, in some ways he's more straightforward because he was more emotionally honest, you know, telling a story available. Yeah. Yeah. Telling a story is just like kind of, you know, generally taking care of a, a healthy relationship that we were having, you know, um, with Zach, it was a little bit, uh, you know, more difficult. It was a little bit cat and mouse. I think, you know, he'd give me a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, and then, you know, one time on the river for whatever reason he happens to just, um, want to open crack. up and yep. crack yep. um but yeah i mean when it came down to you know nina telling me that there was abuse going on in the relationship um all of a sudden uh you know put me in a position where i'm like what do i do you know um do i step in uh like if how is this film affecting that has this film affected it um i mean that's one of the reasons why i you know proposed putting myself in the film um, when we applied for funding, because it was, because I was asking around, uh, I was asking filmmakers and producers and, you know, people, uh, that I would see around Cartemquin and everybody gave a different answer for what I should do. <laughs> you know, some people were like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't make the film. Um, other people were like, oh, you should make the film, but do it like this. Um, or other people were like, don't worry about it. Just keep, you know, um, so I, I realized I had to decide for myself. And it's a big responsibility because, you know, I'll be judged for it, I'll, you know, and if anything happens negatively toward, you know, Nina and Zach, especially, you know, I'll also be judged for that. Um, yeah. Uh, 
but so the, the you know one of the reasons why I put myself in the film is to at least give audiences a sense of what it was like making this film, you mm-hmm. know what it was like trying to navigate all these questions about you know what is the right thing to do. Um, there's that wonderful moment in it when you and and I love the way you sort of acknowledge it, right? Because like inherently you bring a camera into a situation and you are catalyzing events and affecting the way people behave and whatever. But when Zach asks you the question, okay, which film are we shooting? Are we shooting the one where you're? I don't know you're here. The one you know, and and I thought that was a, I thought that was a, a kind of a beautiful moment of the meta nature of it and the acknowledgement of it. Yeah, jo- Josh really latched on to that. He found that moment uh, and. Um, he really latched up to this idea of unreliable narrator. Um, you know, he really helped build uh, a character of Zach that was so complex um, because yeah, he's, he's so smart. <laughs> um, he's so self-aware um, and, you know, for whatever reason, when we think about people who are making certain choices about their life that are hurting them or hurting people around them, you know, we don't think of them as self-aware it's, about those decisions but you know with Zach's case he is what about the choice not to show the Kyle video the editorial choice to sort of you know to do the Herzog grizzly man (laughs) moment with it you know and 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 talk about talk about the discussions that you had around that choice um well the you know some things are more powerful when you don't see them right like there's that uh I think well there's also um there's also the fact that like there wasn't much to see actually it was a recording that kyle their roommate at the time took secretly from his room and like he was like filming through a door crack and there wasn't really much to see um and then also there's just you know there's something interesting about seeing zach and kyle's you know expressions when they're playing this video almost you know it's 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 almost like it doesn't bother them because it's so normalized and that says a lot. Um, yeah, I think all those factors. Yeah. Um, talk about the final the final song in the movie and in your choice of of, of uh, ending with that song. Uh, we were try. I try to get a couple other songs at first. I try to get this hip hop track from uh, Common Market. Um, I tried to get a Neil Young song. Uh, we just couldn't, you know get a hold of them um but we could get a hold of the mountain goats uh and ended up being really meaningful because you know that that song this year comes off of a 2005 album called the sunset tree which came out when i was in high school and i played that record a lot in high school driving around rockford um because it was partially because it was about uh you know john darnell the lead singer's uh relationship with his abusive stepfather that he grew up with um and it was surprising for me because uh you know it's it's music that you can sort of like bob your head to it's very optimistic music about child abuse um and that was groundbreaking for me um and yeah so i i don't know i mean it's it's a little it's like weirdly on the nose but also at the same time it just felt like you know perfect that they were the that the mountain goats were the ones that got back to us and were like you know yeah sure we'll cut you a deal and get you the song that's 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 the cinema gods rewarding you for your efforts no and i thought it was and i thought it was a brilliant choice because in a way it's you know form reflects content and 
the, the film starts light, and it, it is this sort of zippy, visually flashy, beautiful kind of uh, voyage that then takes you to the depths. And so I thought it was just a brilliant, a brilliant choice to end it with. Well, thank you. Um, well, on that note, I will let you go, and I will get back to the edit bay myself, but I'm very <laughs> grateful for your time, and I appreciate that beautiful, beautiful uh, movie. It's, it's really a work of art. Yeah, thanks for your time. I look forward to you know, meeting in person someday. We, we will do yeah. that. You got it. Okay, cool. All right, take care, man. All right, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. A big thank you to Bing Liu and his symphony of collaborators who contributed to this beautiful film. And to all the skaters with their busted decks and scarred trucks. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. This show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Eldest Productions. Thanks for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>